And so we're in 2 Timothy 2 and 1 to 3. Let me read it for you. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown, except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insights into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together as we sit. Loving Father, we ask once again that you might open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Melt our hearts and motivate our wills, that we might live in humble obedience to all that we read. In Jesus' name, amen. If I have the first picture up. Last week I was watching CNN, or was it the week before, I can't remember now, and uh, the American new cable news channel as it's uh, covered the approach of Hurricane Irma toward Florida. All the reporters were posted there, all being blown around. All the news conferences involving governors and mayors, as well as all the news anchors, were telling people in Florida to simply get out, to evacuate, to run away as soon as possible, to leave behind their treasure possessions and instead save themselves by getting out of the area as quick as possible. If you can show the next slide, for days, and then especially the hours before Irma hits, there were five lane highways full of people doing just that, abandoning their homes, their boats, their treasure possessions, and literally running for it. And of course, it makes sense. Humanly, it makes sense. If that's coming towards you, then you get out of there. You go somewhere safe and you sit it out. But what about when a spiritual storm hits? What about if suffering comes in all its different guises? What then? Maybe like the storm that had hit Paul, the hurricane-force winds of the world in which he lived, the winds that were battering him from outside, the Roman Empire with the Emperor Nero in power, with his vicious oppression and persecution of Christians, meaning that Paul was now in prison experiencing the full force of a Roman justice system and about to face his own execution. But Paul wasn't just being battered by the storms raging against him from outside the church. 
Also, he was facing the blast of a storm from inside the church. From those who'd once called themselves brothers in Christ, Homogenes, Phygelus, and a whole load of others, Christian brothers, some of them Christian leaders, who had now disowned Paul, ashamed. And when the going got tough, they left him. They deserted him. They ran for it to sit it out and save themselves. And of course, Paul is also facing an internal storm. He's in prison, lonely, cold, isolated, suffering physically, almost certainly suffering mentally when he knows that his death is about to come. Paul is being battered by a spiritual, emotional and physical hurricane. And did his fellow Christians have the right idea to metaphorically jump in their car, get on the five-line highway and head for the quiet place, save themselves, ensure their own safety? Well, Paul in our passage says no. No. In verse 3, he says, join with me in suffering. Or in another version, it says, endure hardship. Paul says that in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a spiritual, emotional, physical hurricane, Paul says the Christian must do exactly the opposite. Not run away, but stay exactly where they are. Back in chapter 1 and verse 8, he had said to Timothy, join me in suffering. No, the place to stay is right in the middle. If I can have the next picture. As I watched... One of the anchors standing there, literally being blown across the screen. His producer telling him, no, you stay right there. And here in this chapter, Paul continues to call Timothy not to run and hide, but to, verse 1, stand strong. Verse 3, endure hardship. Verse 10, endure everything. Verse 11, be prepared to die with Christ. Verse 12, endure. Stay in the storm. Don't evacuate. Don't try and save yourself. But why? Why does he say that? He's saying it because the gospel matters and the gospel is at stake. We get that in verse 8 onwards. In verse 8 we read, Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you see what he's saying? My gospel is this great news that Jesus Christ, yes, was fully human, but he was fully God's. And he died on a cross in your place and my place, that he might take our sin and our rebellion on himself. And then rose again from the dead, proving that he really was God, but also proving that God had accepted his sacrificial death on our behalf. That we might be free. And that we might have this great hope of eternal glory, this great salvation. And Paul says, I'm suffering because of that gospel. It is that gospel that means I stay here. Because it means everything to me. It is my gospel. It's not someone else. It's not something over. It is my gospel. It is my hope. It is my salvation. It is where I find my eternal glory. But also, it is the only hope for those who have not yet become Christians. It is the only hope, this gospel. 
I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is saying here, the reason I stick it out here is because the gospel matters. It matters to me and it matters to those who have not yet heard it. And you see, the problem is, those who ran away didn't just run away to find safety. They actually ran away from their calling to stand for Jesus. We know that some turned to heresy. We know that from 1 and 2 Timothy. We know that some had such an overriding desire to be comfortable in this world that it meant that when the going got tough, they were prepared to to reject Jesus in order to find some sort of other message, other way that was somehow a bit more palatable that meant they didn't get into so much trouble. They preferred to be accepted by the world around them. They preferred the comforts that it offered. They preferred to be liked, well thought of, physically comfortable. When I was a teenager, one of the books that uh, I remember reading over and over, well, not over and over again, I didn't read any books over and over again, but I definitely, definitely read it a couple of times, and still I have it on my shelf, and I look at it, is uh, by Jim Packer called Laidback Religion. Because on the front of it, it has a cartoon picture of um, someone on, uh, sitting on a chair on a lilo with a kind of cocktail in one hand and uh, something else in the other hand and uh, a sun uh, shade over on this swimming pool with uh, a hat on it saying, uh, I love Jesus. And he said, that's what many of us wish the Christian life was, don't we? Wish it was, lay back. You know, you follow Jesus and life is just like sitting in a swimming pool in the Algarve, sunning yourself. Ah, this is what knowing Jesus is about. And actually, that's what most of us, if we're honest, would prefer. And the truth is, that's what those who had run away preferred. But Paul is clear. The implications of verse 12 and verse 13 is that they were disowning Christ and becoming faithless. That is the danger. Is that we run, we actually run away from Christ. Because we prefer our own safety than to stand for him and to stand for the gospel. So Paul urges Timothy in verse 1, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace. He is not saying, Timothy, gird up your loins, you know, man up. Look to your inner resources like we're here on all the kind of, you know, those great stories we hear or we might read, the great inner resources. He's not saying look for inner resources. He's saying... Find strength in the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. That is, make your reliance total upon him. Make your focus wholehearted on him. As uh, Fran's brother said in a, a sort of funeral service we were at, he spoke of grace as being like, instead of tracing up the stairs in your own efforts, instead imagine a, chair, a stair lift, where all you have to do is slump back in it and allow the grace of Jesus to lift you, the grace of Jesus to hold you and to take you. Or maybe I use this picture, and if you want to put the next slide up. On one of the days of the Florida hurricane, I was watching again, and uh, they had the uh, radar tracking storm on the weather. And the weatherman uh, was talking about the eye of the storm. If you know the eye of a hurricane is eerily quiet. In fact, there is no movement. It is utterly still. 
And in fact, there's a picture of the previous person, Chris Como, uh, who uh, suddenly the eye of the storm came on him for about 20 minutes, and suddenly there was no wind, nothing, he just stood there. And then 20 minutes later, the wind started, and off he was again. The, the, the eye of a storm is extraordinary. But you see, he pointed, the, uh, the weatherman pointed to a little area in the middle of the eye of the storm, to some shaded areas, and he said, those are almost certainly flocks of birds. They are almost certainly flocks of birds. It is a well-known thing that, uh, you see, if birds stayed out in the wind, then they would literally be blown to pieces. But they don't choose to literally run away or fly away to get away from the storm. What they do is they put themselves at the very eye of the storm, and then wherever the storm goes, they go. Literally, wherever the storm goes, they go. They have no idea where they're going to end up. But they know that the place they need to stay is in the middle. And then when eventually the storm dies away, then wherever they've ended up, they go and get on with it. And for me, it just became this picture of what Paul is saying to Timothy, which is, don't try and get away from this storm. You've got to stay in the middle of this storm, but there is a place in the middle of this storm where there is peace and where you can stand firm. Where you can stand tall. And that very heart, that the very heart of that storm is the presence and grace of Jesus Christ. That is the place to put yourself, not trying to get away, but firmly there in the place where Jesus is. See, that is the calling. That is the calling of us, to be those who fix our eyes wholly on Jesus. But then Paul, I think, challenges us as we then look forwards, because we have no idea what the future holds. We have no idea what kind of suffering might come. You know, when this church goes through interregnum, maybe it will be tough. Maybe there will be difficult things that come upon us, maybe personally, or maybe as a church. Maybe a big storm will hit, who knows? We need to be prepared for it. And how can we be prepared for it? And Paul, in effect, is saying that to Timothy. Timothy, Paul is thinking, well, crumbs, I'm about to lose my life, and I've entrusted the gospel to Timothy, but Timothy, who knows what might happen to you? You need to make sure you entrust that gospel to others who also will have the same attitude. They'll preserve it. They'll stand with it. They won't leg it the minute trouble comes. And therefore, he says to Timothy, the things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable or trustworthy people who will also be qualified to teach others. Paul is saying we need to make sure the gospel remains intact and is passed on no matter what cost. And because of that, we need to find reliable and trustworthy people that can do that. It's our calling as a church. In a sense, I hand this over to you and say, you need to be our trustworthy and reliable handlers of God's word and guardians of the gospel as this church moves forwards. When you're looking for a new vicar, if I may be as bold as to say, don't look for anyone like me, what you're to look for, and amongst whatever skills you want, whatever gifts you want, whatever personality type you want, the most important thing you should look for is character. Character. Is this person trustworthy and reliable when it comes to their handling of the word of God, that is the most important question you must ask. 
when you're seeking the next person? Are they trustworthy and reliable in their handling of the word of God? For it is the word of God where we find the gospel, which is the very thing that will bring salvation to this world. And the problem is that when trouble comes in the church, especially because of the gospel, and especially because we live in a culture that these days less and less accepts, accepts what we stand for as Christians, it will get stormy, and it will get very stormy indeed. And the temptation will be to do what is happening already all around the church, across the world, is you change the gospel, you change the word of God, so it takes the flack away. I know it's because we say we want to be more relevant. It isn't most of the time. It's because we want to be more accepted and more liked and not be seen as offensive. Now, there's, we should never be offensive as people, but the gospel challenges The gospel challenges culture. The Bible is the very thing that helps us to know whether what our culture is saying is of God or not. It challenges all of us. It challenges our culture. Our culture is a church, doesn't it? And so what we need is those in leadership in our church who won't give in to pressure to say the more comfortable things just because it will take the heat off, just because it will be more acceptable. That doesn't mean we become objectionable in the way we talk about those things. Of course not. Jesus talks about truth and grace. We're to speak with grace, but we must speak truth. And Paul knows the great danger is if, if Timothy doesn't hand it on to those who will be trustworthy and reliable, then the gospel in the end will become not the gospel at all. And he talks about that in other letters. He says some of you have turned to a gospel that is not a gospel at all. And it has absolutely no power. So as we head into interregnum, the most important thing we can do is to have confidence in a biblical gospel, to hold on to the biblical gospel and to insist that what is taught in this church is a biblical gospel. And then uh, finally, we get three little pictures. Three pictures then, I think, of what it means for us as we head into this time of interregnum, but actually what it means to be a disciple. It's got nothing really to do with the fact that I'm disappearing. It's just this is normal discipleship. I wonder what you think normal discipleship is like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul says it's like three things. First, he says it's like being a soldier, verse 3. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul often used the image of soldier, and people today get a bit squeamish about war imagery, and uh, he's not really here trying to get into that. It's not about the appropriateness of war. It's just an image that we will all understand what makes a good soldier. And it's obvious. Obedience and loyalty, doesn't it? You need someone who, when they're told what to do, they're going to do it. Because you can't operate in an army unless that happens. Obedience and loyalty. Uh, one Marshal, uh, Marshal Fogg, uh, a French general in the World War I, commanded an officer, you must not retire. You must hold at all costs. Then said the officer, that means we must die. Fogg answered, precisely. Warfare means courage, commitment, sacrifice. 
Paul is saying to Timothy and to us, those in leadership, but those are also disciples, join in suffering with us, join in obedience with us, join in unflagging loyalty to Jesus with us, join in sacrifice. And Paul extends that soldiering analogy when he speaks about not getting involved in uh, civilian affairs. In fact, that was part of the Roman code. We forbid men engaged in military service to engage in civilian occupations. Paul's point is very clear. A good soldier is one who is single-minded. That is, uh, you can't have someone on the battlefield who's also uh, worrying about a whole load of other things because if their mind is somewhere else, they're not going to be on it uh, when the battle comes, when the enemy is in front of them. A soldier needs to be single-minded. And Paul is saying the Christian needs to be single-minded. The danger is, it's not saying you can't go to your gym or be involved in your football club. It's not all that kind of thing. But what it's saying is, in all of those places, be a follower of Christ. Don't be a follower of Christ on Sunday and then kind of not re-deal with him for the rest of the week. It's funny, isn't it? We get worried about fervency when it's associated with people of faith or religion. Our world does. People get nervous of fanatics. But Paul is calling Timothy to single-mindedness. But fervency that's given to Christ, who is perfect God and perfect man, whose commands are consonant with perfect love and wisdom and our highest good, then that fervency and single-minded devotion enables us to be what we ought to be, standing tall even in suffering, and extending to the world outside the good news of God's sacrificial love to all. Spurgeon said these words, Up I pray you now, by him whose eyes are like a flame of fire, and yet were wet with tears. By him on whose head are many crowns, and yet who wore a crown of thorns. By him who is King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet bowed his head to death for you. Resolve that to life's latest breath, you will spend and be spent for his praises. The Lord grant that there may be many in this church, good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Be a soldier. Then secondly, be an athlete. It speaks here about being like an athlete. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. What does it mean by competing according to the rules? Uh, what it means is uh, back in uh, ancient athletics, those who had participated in the Olympiad first had to, uh, were required to compete a 10-month training period and then swear an oath that they had done it. See, those were the rules. So what he was saying was, don't uh, think you can be an athlete if you don't go through the gruelling preparation that's needed. Those long months of discipline. Paul is saying that you must be single-minded and wholehearted and disciplined like an athlete. We have our own world-famous athlete sat with us now. Far more famous than the bloke she's standing next to. Hannah ran the Great North Run as one of the elite women last weekend, and um, we're incredibly proud of her. But the one thing you discover on uh, Facebook, if you're a friend of Hannah's on Facebook, is 
Well, also, she just eats tons of chocolates. <laughs> and she's going out for meals all the time. But not all the time, because what Hannah loves to do is run. She loves to run, don't you, Hannah? And she uh, puts in hour upon hour upon hour upon hour. She had trained hard, I'm sure, for that great north run. And it was pretty gruelling. It was hard work, wasn't it? It hurts. It was tough. You see, and that's what the picture here is, is it's saying, you know, being a disciple of, uh, of Christ, it involves rigor and sweat. It is not a walk in the park on a summer Sunday afternoon. You know, it means getting out of bed and going to church when you really don't want to. That is what it's like. And then finally, it's like a farmer. We've got farmers here as well. I won't get them out the front. But I'm always wary to talk about farmers when I know nothing about farming. But we know enough of that imagery, don't we? The hard-working farmer. Long, long hours. Early hours. Constant toil, ploughing, sowing, tending, weeding, reaping, storing. Regular disappointments, frost, pest, disease. It takes patience and perseverance to get up and keep doing it day in, day out. Do you get the picture of what discipleship is? You see, Christian ministry or the Christian life can be all those things. It is not always like New Wine or Soul Survivor or that worship conference where you had that great high. And yet most of us would love to think that it was. We would love to think it's like that all the time, but that is not discipleship. Discipleship is the grueling day-to-day battle, which is hard work, painful, sacrificial, personally costly. It requires us not to be effortlessly surfing a great spiritual wave all day. It is not like that. It is about strain and struggle and diligence. And Paul says to Timothy, join me and get others who are going to join me because the gospel is worth it. Because like the athletes, at the very end, there is a prize. Because like the hard-working farmer at the very end, you receive a share of the crops. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is that uh, if you will give yourself to the hard, grueling, sometimes exhausting work of being a disciple of Jesus, one day it will be worth it. One day you will receive a prize beyond anything you can imagine now. Don't run away. Stand firm. Fight for the gospel. Amen.